In this series of lessons these past few weeks, we've been talking about things that people misunderstand about churches of Christ. And one of the big misunderstandings that people oftentimes have is the kind of music that we have in our worship. I've often had people tell me, oh yes, uh, churches of Christ, you're the ones that don't have music. However, that statement is not a correct statement. We have music. We believe in music in worship. We just don't have instrumental music. You see, there are two types of music, and only two types of music. You have vocal music, and you have instrumental music. God has specified in His Word vocal music, but not instrumental music. And we'll talk more about that later. This music thing is something that most people notice when they walk into our assembly for the very first time. They see no piano, they see no organ, they see no pipes for the organ, they see no drums, no guitars, no choir loft, no choir. And for most folks in our day and time in 21st century America, it's a bit of a culture shock, a religious culture shock. It's nothing particularly weird. It's just the fact that the music is different from what most people are accustomed to. In fact, most worship services today in Christian culture are filled with sounds we don't have. Sounds that are conspicuously absent in our worship. You don't hear the sounds of an organ or a piano. You don't hear the sounds of drums or guitars or keyboards or harps or bells or horns or any other instrument. They're nowhere to be found and they're nowhere to be heard. The musical sound in our services that first-time guests hear is the sound of voices. Just voices, singing praise to God. Our music and our musical praise is 100% vocal. It is a cappella. And everyone in here is familiar with hearing the term in their life, a cappella. Now, to be clear... Most people who encounter this in worship for the first time find it somewhat strange. And yet, you know, I gave you a bit of a history lesson last Lord's Day with Zwingli. I'll give you a little more of a history lesson today. Even though folks find this kind of strange, and some folks find it a bit hard to swallow, Acapella, vocal-only music, has been the practice of most churches, most churches, 
since the beginning of Christianity. Let's start with the word acapella. To most of us, what does acapella mean? It means vocal only, right? It means without musical accompaniment. That's what we know that word to mean today. In our culture today, if someone says we're singing a cappella, that's singing without musical accompaniment. But the word a cappella is actually an Italian word. And in the Italian language, it literally means in the chapel style or as in the chapel. So when someone says they're going to sing a cappella, they're actually saying, I'm going to sing like in the chapel. As far as I've been able to determine, the first organ was introduced into the worship of any body of people claiming to be Christians 670 years after Christ. And it was introduced by Pope Vatilian I. And when it was introduced, it threatened division within the Catholic Church. And it was taken out to preserve the unity of the church. Sometime later in the 800s, you will find a few isolated uses of the organ. But vocal only praise remained the norm until the 1300s. There was a man by the name of Joseph Bingham. Joseph Bingham was an English scholar. He was a, an ecclesiastical historian of the 18th century. And Joseph Bingham wrote a ten-volume history of the Christian church. The book is, books are actually entitled The Antiquities of the Christian Church. Volume 1, page 315, is what he says. Music in churches is as ancient as the apostles, but instrumental music not so. For it is now generally agreed among learned men that the use of organs came into the church since the time of Thomas Aquinas. In 1250. Now I want, I want you to let that soak in. I want you to let it soak in real good. By the time that Thomas Aquinas came along, Christian people had been worshiping over 1,200 years. And for that 1,200 years, one of the practices that had remained remarkably constant was vocal only praise. And all of that was about to change. The instrument started showing up regularly in the 1300s. Historians report that by the early 1500s, organs had become a fixture in almost every important church building in Europe. Now remember... All of this happened in the Roman Catholic Church. Now at that time, in Western Europe, Catholicism was the only game in town. 
Organs, though, had not been a fixture for very long until those pesky reformers showed up. Remember Martin Luther and, and those guys. And Martin Luther and those pesky reformers had radical ideas about reform. And so things are about to change again. If you're going to reform something, the first thing you need is something to reform. Just as important as having something to reform is having something to reform it to. Luther and the Reformers wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And the something that they wanted to reform it to was the church you read about on the pages of the New Testament. Luther and the men who started the Reformation movement, that movement was largely a movement to recover Bible doctrine. And the objective was to move things closer to the simplicity and the purity of the New Testament times. Do you remember from our study last week the name of Huldrych Zwingli? This means yes, this means no. You remember Huldrych Zwingli? Stay with me. Timothy George, this name will not be on the final exam. Timothy George is the former dean of the Beeson School of Divinity of Samford University. Mr. George wrote a book entitled Theology of the Reformers. This is a quote from page 131 of Mr. George's book. The Catholic authorities were shocked at the rigor with which Zwingli pursued his reforms. In 1527, the organ at the great minister was dismantled and removed. Despite the fact that Zwingli was an accomplished musician who had mastered a number of of instruments. Now when it says the organ at the great minister was dismantled and removed, the great minister was the church in Zurich that was the home base of Zwingli's reforming work. And there are a lot of other historical perspectives of the men of the Reformation movement that we could cite. In the interest of time, I'm not going to go into all of the historical perspectives. The Puritans, the Puritans in America and the Puritans in England were opposed to the use of instruments of music in worship. But by the 1700s, the conviction of vocal-only music began to erode. By the late 1800s, vocal-only praise was an endangered species in American church life. But, 
among prominent names in the 1800s, instrumental music was still opposed. You may or may not be familiar with the name of Adam Clark. Adam Clark has to rank as one of the most illustrious Bible commentators the world has ever known. Adam Clark was a Methodist. Adam Clark was a contemporary of John Wesley. And concerning the use of the organ in worship, here is what Adam Clark has to say. I am an old man and an old minister. And I here declare that I have never known them mechanical instruments productive of any good in the worship of God. And I have reason to believe that they were productive of much evil. Music as a science I esteem and admire. But instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. This is the abuse of music. And I here register my protest against all such corruption in the worship of the infinite spirit who requires his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And just for clarity, Adam Clark's commentary was written in the mid-1800s, so it was written in the mid-19th century. In Clark's commentary, quoting John Wesley, Clark writes, I have no objection to the organ in our chapels, provided it is neither seen nor heard. Does the name Charles Spurgeon ring a bell? For 38 years, Spurgeon filled the pulpit of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Thousands of people heard Spurgeon every Sunday. During that 38 years, and this was in the late 1800s through the turn of the century, the sound of the organ was not heard in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And here's how Spurgeon felt about that subject, about the use of instruments of music in worship. Spurgeon writes, David appears to have had a peculiarly tender remembrance of the singing of the pilgrims. And assuredly, it is the most delightful part of worship and that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by machinery. That's in Spurgeon's Treasury of David, Volume 1, page 272. Those are Spurgeon's comments on the 42nd Psalm. I give all of that this morning as a snapshot, but in no way a exhaustive discussion of the historical context of the use of the instrument in worship. 
because we're dealing with a finite amount of time. I know most of you would like to have lunch before supper. So let's move on to another aspect of the discussion. People make numerous arguments in favor of instrumental music. One you hear quite often is, well, instrumental music is a natural talent, like speaking and singing. And since it's a natural talent, it should be dedicated to God. Now here's what the Scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In both of those passages, the Bible specifies singing, and nowhere does it specify the other type of music. Now, if you want to take the idea of instrumental music as a natural talent and should be dedicated to God, let's submit it to the test of logic. And what happens then? In logic, you have a major premise, a minor premise, and then from that you draw a conclusion. So anything that is natural is approved for worship. Of necessity, that must be your major premise. Instrumental music is a natural talent. That would be your minor premise. Therefore, instrumental music is approved for worship. That would be your conclusion. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we really want to go there? Do we really want to take the major premise, anything that is natural is approved for worship, and follow that to its logical conclusion? I hardly think so. There are a lot of things that are natural that would not be approved for worship. Well, then some make the argument, it said we can have instrumental music in the home. Why can we not have instrumental music in the church? And I, I have instrumental music in my home. Those of you who have been in my home, I have a baby grand piano sitting right in my living room. And sometimes I actually go in and I'll look in the piano bench or in one of the drawers and I'll draw out a piece of sheet music and I'll sit down at the piano and I'll play it. Not very well, but I'll play it. But you see, we have a lot of things in the home that we don't have in the church. If you remember, the church at Corinth was condemned because they had made a church dinner out of the Lord's Supper. There are a lot of things that are morally right to do at home that are religiously wrong. It's morally right to bathe. I'm glad people do it. But we don't need to start coming up here to bathe as a part of worship. But you know what? You could submit that to the natural talent argument, couldn't you? 
Anything that's natural is approved for worship. Bathing is natural, so we need to come up here and take a bath. And I don't think so, Tim. You see? So just because it's something we do at home and something that's morally right doesn't mean we need to bring it to the worship of God. Well, then you have people that make the argument, well, they have instrumental music in heaven. And if they have instrumental music in heaven, why can't we have instrumental music in the church? My first question is this. Who told you that there are instruments of music in heaven? You see, folks will sometimes say, well, if God has it in heaven, that's His business. But since God didn't put it in the church, we don't have a right to do that. Well, that's a true statement. But, beloved, that statement actually misses the mark. Let's ask the question. Are there mechanical instruments of music in heaven? Now, think about this. What can a spiritual being do with a material harp? Heaven is the home of the soul. Heaven is the place where the spirits of just men are made perfect. We just as well argue that there are going to be Chevrolets, Fords, and Cadillacs in heaven as to say there are going to be mechanical instruments of music. The idea that you have mechanical instruments of music in heaven is a mistaken idea that comes from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, as I've said when we've studied it, is probably the most violated and most abused book in the entire Bible. And the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. It has many symbols. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, it says the things were signified unto John. Signify is a word that comes from the word sign. It means to sign-ify. If something is signified, that means that it is set forth in a sign. A sign cannot be a sign of itself. If you're driving down the road and you see a sign that says, Dallas 150 miles, that sign is not Dallas. That sign signifies you how to get to Dallas and where Dallas is. So if a sign cannot be a sign of itself, the harp that's mentioned in Revelation must be a sign of something else. If you turn to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, Revelation 8 and verse 3 tells us, that incense was added to the prayers of the saints. Were there actual harps and actual bowls of incense in heaven? Or is it a sign of something else? An abused passage of Scripture is Revelation 14, verses 1 through 3. John writes, And I looked... And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, 
having the Father's name written in their foreheads. And I have heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And the voice I heard was as the voice of harpers harping with their harps. That's the way it reads in the American Standard Version. Did he say he heard a great thunder? No. I heard the voice as the voice of a great thunder. And as the voice of many waters. And as the voice of harpers harping with their harps. The 144,000 redeemed of earth, which is also a symbolic number. The 144,000 redeemed of the earth were gathered around the throne in heaven and they were singing the new song. And the beauty of their singing, the voice was as the voice of many waters. Have you ever stood by a waterfall and listened as the water came over the falls? And tumbled into the pool below and the perfect rhythm of that waterfall. The voice of many waters. As the voice of many waters is the rhythm. As the voice of a great thunder is the volume. And as the voice I heard was as the voice of harpers harping with their harps. That's the melody. It was all symbolic. Then some folks will say, well, instrumental music was used in the Old Testament. So was incense. So was circumcision. So were animal sacrifices. You don't see people today walking into... A religious gathering with a lamb under their arm and saying, I brought this for us to offer as a burnt offering, do you? You don't see folks walking in carrying bowls of incense. Why do we want to go get David's harp, but we don't want to bring David's animal sacrifice and we don't want to bring David's incense? If we're going to bring one, why not bring them all, you see? And we already read a moment ago, what Spurgeon had to say about David doing that. Do we abandon the New Testament and go back and worship under the law? What what did we say in the very beginning of this series of lessons we're trying to do? Simply restore New Testament Christianity. In our very first lesson, you remember, we talked about the radical idea of restoration. Of restoring worship after the pattern of the first century. And we've got numerous examples of singing in the first century. In Matthew 26 and verse 30, the, Jesus and the disciples were together. And it says, when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In Acts 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas are in the prison. At midnight they prayed and sang praises to God and the prisoners heard them. Romans 15 and verse 9, Paul writes, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15. What is it then 
I'll pray with the Spirit. I'll pray with the understanding also. I'll sing with the Spirit. And I'll sing with the understanding also. Remember at the very beginning this morning we said there are only two types of music. There's instrumental music and there's vocal music. What did God specify? Vocal. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. By the grammatical law of exclusion, when God specified singing, that eliminated everything else. I wish I had a dollar for every time someone has said to me, well, Tim, the Bible doesn't say not to use instruments of music. If I had a dollar for every time somebody has said that to me, I'd be a wealthy man today, folks. But think about that just from the standpoint of life. At some point today, perhaps, right after this service or sometime during this week, you're going to go somewhere to a restaurant or a fast food place. Now, if you go to Dairy Queen and you order your lunch, and you walk up there and you say, I want a belt buster with cheese. And that's the one that has two meat patties on it. That's the one I always get. I want a belt buster with cheese, french fries, and a Diet Coke. And they look at me and I pay for it. And I go sit down about five, ten minutes. They say, sir, your order's ready. And I walk up there, and I have a steak finger basket, onion rings, and a chocolate milkshake. And I say to the lady, I say, ma'am, I ordered a belt buster with cheese, french fries, and Diet Coke. You didn't tell me not to bring you a steak finger basket. I don't go in and tell them everything on the menu I don't want. There may be 50 items on a menu at a restaurant. When I tell them I want this, what does that do with everything else on the menu? It automatically excludes everything else on the menu. God said sing and make melody in your heart. God said sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When God specified that particular type of music, Beloved, by the law of grammatical exclusion, that automatically excluded everything else. It comes down to this. When Jesus Christ is Lord and Master of our lives, we're going to want to do things His way. And we're not going to look for some way that we can do what we want and pretend to do it the Lord's way. We're not going to quibble with Him. We'll say, Lord, that's what You said. That's what I want to do. Is He the Lord and Master of your life this morning? Or do you need to make changes? Is there something different that needs to be done? I don't know the needs of your heart. I don't know the needs of your life. But if we can help you, 
in being obedient, living God's kind of life. It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.